Welcome to the Sharon Kleiner Hour, The Power of Water and Global Warming. Many of you are probably wondering, as I have been told, uh, why I chose to get, have for my mission and be committed to meet with you each week worldwide about water and the global warming. As you know, without water, there would be no Earth, planet, Earth, there would be the moon. And as you understand, we want eternity for everlasting for all of our generations with water and the concerns of water and learning more about it. About your health, you are being affected with global warming. And the global warming, as you've been learning about all of the different disagreements that are going on, there are many more scientists that are saying that global warming has been going on for centuries. We're just feeling it more now with those the symptoms. The show is designated each week, committed with a mission for you to learn and understand more about yourself and your symptoms, whether you be drowsier than normal, you'd be, you'd have more symptoms of allergies, you can have more symptoms when you travel all over the world and notice the changes of your health. Today we have a lot of excitement with the show. We have Michaela Rogash who just returned uh, from India. She did a, an exchange working in, uh, as a volunteer in orphanages. We're going to learn a lot about the country of India and what was going, what has been going on with their changes that are like I will call them not global warming, but they are having a 135 degree weather there now, and a lot of the differences of living that she had come from living in southern Oregon and in North America and going to India. We're also going to have as our second guest. Rod Nichols, who's with the Oregon Department of Forestry, and we're very excited to have Rod with us today, too. We're going to take a moment for our sponsor, and we will be right back and meet with Michaela. Discover the secret of Nature's Tears Eye Mist, an entirely different approach to eye care without eye drops. When your tear film is dry, your eyes feel dry. Nature's Tears Eye Mist naturally supplements the tear film with Biologic Aqua Absolute Premium Standard Grade of pure, all-natural water. Nature's Tears Eye Mist, just a mist. All-natural, safe, convenient, no preservatives. Nature's Tears Eye Mist can be purchased nationwide at selected eye care professionals and drugstores near you. To reach a show host or guest during the live show, dial toll-free in North America, 866-613-1612. Or, if outside the USA and Canada, dial 001-858-268-3068. This is Sharon Kleiner, and I want to welcome you to my show today, and uh, welcome you to listen with our guest today, Michaela Rogash. Are you with us, Michaela? Can you hear me okay? I can hear you. Oh, wonderful. I can hear you real well there. I want to thank you for taking time to be with us today. I know you just got back on Thursday, and you've got to be exhausted. And I need for the audience to know, Michaela is my granddaughter. And she just she's 18 years old. She just graduated from high school here in, in Grants Pass, Oregon. She was class treasurer for two years, mistress of ceremonies for her graduation ceremonies, very active in school plays, been very active in choreography and music, 
but Michaela, you chose to announce to your family that you wanted to go to India three weeks after graduation and volunteer for orphanages. Could you tell our audience why you decided to do that? Um, well, I've always been interested in uh, humanitarian efforts and just very interested in going over and volunteering in countries that I know need it. Um, and I, I picked India mainly because I know that there's a lot of need for international volunteers there, and uh, it seemed just like a, the perfect place to go. So you decided on, you probably had a lot of different countries to choose from, I'm sure, with the program you went with, but why did you choose India? Um, I was looking at uh, Sri Lanka for a while, but I really picked India after doing a lot of research on the country, uh, the population, uh, the fact the government, uh, just its influence worldwide, and I thought that it might be a nice place to start. That was a very good idea, um, and the uh, the government, the India does have a lot of influence all over the world. Yeah, uh, you're right. Uh, it's it's a 1.1 billion in population, and I don't know if you know this, but there's been some reports out that within the next years that India will exceed China. Right. China's at 1.2 billion, and I guess India will go over uh, that population. Um, wanted to ask you, when you say they have an influence, what did you at 18 years old think the influence has been? Um, I think India, well, first off, the fact that it's become a democracy in such a big country in such little time, I mean, since independence, um, it's, it's amazing the fact how technological they have become, and yet still they have... Uh, a schism between their classes, and I think mm-hmm. that that really reflects throughout the world. And I think just the fact of its size politically, it's very, it's very active, and a lot of other countries look to it for that is uh, right. That's right. Yeah. And you mentioned their technology uh, is enormous. Mm-hmm. And uh, d- while you were there, Michaela, did you know they just elected a woman as president? I did. Yes. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you, uh, going to a orphanage. Uh, let's start out with the trip. Now, you chose, you paid your own way uh, with the program that you went on out of your own pocket. Uh, you decided to do volunteer work to help orphanages mm-hmm. um, in India. Now, when you got on that plane and you chose to go to India, you went alone. Yes, yes, it is. And how did you prepare to do that? And I think our audience of young listeners and parents of young people that might do the same thing. Uh, what made you decide that you would do this alone and you took off? Did you? What was the preparation that you did to get ready? Well, I think one of the biggest things you can have is the support of your family, obviously. Uh, you need to know that they're there for you, and you can call them if you ever get into any trouble while you're gone. Um, but I think what I at the time was thinking is that I just graduated high school, I'm going out into the world, and it's important for every young individual to experience and go out and, you know, not be closed-minded or isolated to the world. You need to be able to experience it and have some firsthand experience just, you know, um, interacting with other people of other cultures. So, mm-hmm. Excellent. Uh, that's true. Now, when you were preparing to go to India, knowing 
uh, you obviously had studied uh, the cultures and lifestyle there, mm-hmm. and you knew that it was going to be very warm. I think it was 130 degrees, if not higher, while you were there. Uh, what did you do to prepare and let our audience know what did you take with you to prepare for what you might not be able to have available for you there? Let's, say, let's start out because this is the Power of Water show right. and your health. What did you take for, for yourself to prepare for the water that you may have to, uh, may not be able to drink out of the taps, it may not be running all day? What did you take? Um, well, we did a lot of research before I left uh, the type of conditions over there. And so preparing for that, um, I took a couple of water filters and also a UV pen, which um, uh, zaps the water and makes it basically filtered, purified for um, drinking. And so that was really important to have that going over there and knowing that if for some reason water wasn't available to me that was filtered or bottled, that I did have a way to keep hydrated. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, Michaela, what did you take with you to prepare, uh, knowing there was not going to be uh, water available that would be what we call safe water every day? Did right. you take certain things with you to prepare for uh, making sure you were, your health would be taken care of each day? Right, yeah, it's important, um, the research I did, to stay hydrated, obviously, because of the weather and the humidity. So um, preparing for the fact I did, if I didn't have filtered water or bottled water wasn't available, I took two uh, water filters and then also a UV pen. Mm-hmm. Um, which, and, uh, tell us about the UV pen. Did you use that more commonly than your water filters? Um, it's easier to use. Uh-huh. Um, Thankfully, now, did they have? Did, excuse me for interrupting, and I will do that once in a while. Yeah. Uh, when you had filtered water, uh, knowing it was filtered water available to you, uh, did you just go ahead and use the UV pen too? Um, a couple of times I did, you know, just to be safe, especially when you first get there and you're not sure. Um, the filtered water that was available to me was fine, uh, but it was nice having the UV pen just to make sure and be safe. Uh huh. Now, it, it, let's. Uh, what else did you take? Uh, I know you had to take uh, certain clothing because it was going to be so warm. Did you just wait and buy your clothing there? Um, I did purchase a lot of clo- clothing there, uh, especially when you go to another culture and one like India. You want to try to immerse yourself as much as possible. So um, traditional dress over there, um, I bought some of that. But taking clothes with you, you know, just lightweight material, cotton. Um, it's also a very conservative society, so just um, lightweight pants and um, mm-hmm. some longer capri shorts are best. Mm-hmm. Now, I wanted to ask you um, the temperature, uh, and I, I don't know if you knew exactly what the temperature it was. Was it about 130? I never looked at the temperature while I was there, but uh, it's easy to believe that it could be that. <laughs> I know in Iraq they're having about 140, and then we had been told uh, I had been doing some study, getting ready for this show, too, that it was about 130. Mm-hmm. But at 130 degrees, when you're coming from an average of 65 to 75, 80 degrees, how did you personally handle that with your health? Um, it was hard when you fir- when I first got there, obviously, um, a bit of a shock. And it was also, it's monsoon season there, um, so it's their hottest weather right now. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, you have to just stay hydrated. I drank a lot of water the first couple of days I was there. Uh, took my time to get adjusted to the different climate. One of the main things about India is not just that it's hot, but that it's humid. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, that plays a lot into just the way you feel when you step outside and the way your body is reacting to the weather. And so I think staying hydrated was the most important thing I could have done. Now, did you notice since uh, we uh, think about water, did they have an abundant amount of water or was did you, could you drink all the water you wanted or uh, was there um, a time when you could not get the water? In other words, did they have certain times a day that the power wasn't on because there's been reports that they don't have power all day? Yeah, one of the big things about India is um, there are influxes of the electricity and so it, it goes on and off. There are surges and power outages all the time. But uh, the filter I had available to me the first couple of weeks I was there didn't need power to operate. But at no time while I was there did we have a drought type of circumstance where we run out of water. It's just making the water, you know, filtering the water is the thing that takes the time. Now, when you took a shower, did you take also a hot shower, or you just enjoyed the cold shower? Um, (laughs) There wasn't any hot water, which is probably a good thing, and I can understand why there wouldn't be because it was so hot. So, you know, the cold water was refreshing. Um, But, no, it it was enjoyable to wake up and get out of the heat. Yeah, and there was probably no air conditioning that you're used to. You know, there's... Air conditioning in the areas I was in wasn't as big as fans. There was a lot of fans, um, ceiling fans. Okay. What about the food for your health? Did you? What did you find? Uh, uh, what type of food do they serve you? Well, a big thing that um, just the literature I read before I went warned me about was the spices. And um, for someone who's not um, used to eating spicy food and maybe doesn't enjoy spicy food, uh, it can be difficult to find certain dishes that are good for you, and they warn you to take it slow and not, you know, eat everything as soon as you get there because you can become sick off of it. But they do have a lot of rice dishes and um, a lot of vegetables play into Indian diets and bread. And so they have a bread called naan, which is very good, and it's served everywhere. Now, when you say... Uh, vegetables. What kind of vegetables did they serve? Um, well, tomatoes, onions. Um, there's. I ate some eggplant while I was there, and there's a lot of vegetables that um, we don't have here, and I'm not sure about mm-hmm. the names of, but um, mm-hmm. basically they make them into stews, and so big stews are so very important. So now, and the rice. Did the rice have seasoning in it, or do you have a choice? You 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 have a choice. There's plain rice. Um, they have multi-grain rice. You can get um, fried rice type stuff in restaurants. So now, when you weren't drinking water, what were some of the other beverages they offered? Um, there's a lot of fruit juices that you can buy there. Um, finding juices like cranberry and orange juice, um, it's possible to find. You just have to look around in some more of the Western stores. But uh, mango juice is very big in India, and uh, orange-flavored uh, juices. So you can find those in pretty much anywhere you can find um, water. Mm-hmm. Um, let's go into the orphanages, our favorite subject uh, for you and for me, because uh, we're a, f- a group, a family. We, are, uh, Our company is the founder of the Save a Child's Life Foundation, which you are been part of since you were very, very young to concern ourselves with children and melanoma and their life and their health. Tell us about the beautiful children I worked at the orphanage. Yeah, I was 
placed at an orphanage in Bajpur, um, Gurgaon, which is outside of Delhi. And it's a Catholic orphanage. It's the Sisters of Our Lady of Mercy. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to live in the orphanage with the kids. And there were 41 of them. And they went to school there also on the same property. There was a separate school, St. James uh, School. And the kids were wonderful. They're beautiful. They're learning English and Hindi and math. And so just working with them and being able to spend all my time with them and watching them play with each other, it was wonderful. Oh, what a wonderful experience, Michaela. How lucky you are and how wonderful uh, you gave your uh, You did this to go help others. Now, I want to ask you with the children, uh, the age groups that you found there. Um, the kids at the orphanage ranged in age from around 3 to 14, and so there was a very wide range of um, kids. And they were actually split up into different living areas. There were about 13 in three separate what we called houses, um, basically living um, How many areas. were in your area? Um, how many? Yes. Mm-hmm. There were 13 kids in my one area, and the youngest was three. Youngest of three. Now, were you there alone with them, or are you were the, still, uh, the, uh, the staff member, or did you have other staff members with you? The orphanage actually employs a couple of women from the community to come in and live with the kids and cook for them and mm-hmm. uh, supervise them with their homework. And so uh, I was basically a secondary helper to her, just helping mm-hmm. the kids um, get out of their uniforms after school and helping them do their homework and making sure that they're being watched and played with. and so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, let's tell our audience some of the special things that you took uh, to the kids. And we're going to take a break in a moment for our sponsor, Michaela, and we'll be back in a moment. But before we go, we'll start out by telling uh, about what you took your laptop yeah. and what you did with your laptop with the children. <laughs> I took my laptop and a couple of Disney movies. And um, so they were able to watch um, Aladdin and Peter Pan and Mulan, and they really enjoyed that. They loved watching Aladdin. So a lot of music and a lot of music. Uh, <laughs> exciting. You know, I had. Do you think any of them had ever seen a laptop play movies before? No, um, a lot of them haven't seen um, any kind of technology or the electrical um, items I took with me. Their cell phones, things like that, iPods. Mm-hmm. They just love them, so playing with that was wonderful for them. Uh-huh. We're going to listen. We're going to have our sponsor uh, for a moment, and, and Michaela, if you'll wait, and we'll be right back. Okay. We'll take a moment for our sponsor. Thank you. We'll be right back. Discover the secret of Nature's Tears Eye Mist, an entirely different approach to eye care without eye drops. When your tear film is dry, your eyes feel dry. Nature's Tears Eye Mist naturally supplements the tear film with Biologic Aqua Absolute Premium Standard Grade of pure, all-natural water. Nature's Tears Eye Mist, just a mist. All-natural, safe, convenient, no preservatives. Nature's Tears Eye Mist can be purchased nationwide at selected eye care professionals and drugstores near you. To reach a show host or guest during the live show, dial toll-free in North America, 866-613-1612. Or, if outside the USA and Canada, 
Dial 001-858-268-3068. Welcome to the Sharon Kleiner Hour, the power of water and global warming and your health. And your con- we are concerned about your health. Today, one of our special guests is Michaela Rogash, who I've announced earlier. This is my granddaughter who went to India and gave her time to help orphanages in India. Michaela, uh, we were talking about the children, and um, I asked you about the laptop, and you mentioned the fact that many of the children have not seen that kind of technology, although India has a lot of technology, one of the leading technology centers of the world, but you've noticed that they were not, they had not ever seen a technology of a laptop playing a movie. Um, the thing about India that I realized as soon as I got there uh, was the big gap between um, the classes, and India has a very poor population, and in the orphanage where I was working, it was in a rural area, and although they may have seen the laptops and things like that on television, they have never personally um, had any type of interaction with mm-hmm. something like that. I see. Now, the children, when you were playing the Disney movies, do you think any one of them have ever seen a Disney movie? No. <laughs> no, I don't. No. They're now, very... when you... Yeah, because your background is so into music because of the free design group at North Valley High School that you were very much involved with that's so highly praised Mm -hmm. and given uh, tremendous applause and ovations for the extreme talent. Did you sing for them? I did sing for them. The little girls loved it. Just I played Disney music. We sang Disney. I taught them some songs. But did they learn how to sing some of the Disney songs? Yeah, they did. I oh, how exciting. <laughs> what a tremendous influence for America to have you there <laughs> teaching these children a Disney songs. What, which one do you think was one of the favorite ones they liked? Um, they liked a lot of the Mary Poppins songs. Oh. And so a lot of the little girls just, you know, love dancing. They'll dance around and sing. And at the orphanage, oh. they do have a musical-type program where... Uh, someone from the community comes in and plays music for them. So uh-huh. they all love to sing and dance. Now, when you had some of the people there at the orphanages, the staff members and the nuns, did they watch any of the movies with you at all? Yeah. Um, a couple nights before I left, as a kind of going away thing, we got food and soda and we all sat down and uh, we played Aladdin and all the kids came in and they watched it. So all 41 of them, we all got them together. And all 41 we all were watching the laptop? <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. We we put it on the TV. Oh, you put it on the TV? Yes. Okay. Now, did, did they have a VCR to do that? or, uh, or I mean, not a VCR, but a DVD player? Or did they do it off of your laptop? Um, we found a DVD player from one of the people in the community. We got, we went out oh, oh, Michaela, how exciting. I'm glad I asked that question. Yeah. <laughs> oh, how exciting. Did you cry? Uh, it was sad. It was very sad to leave them. Um, of course, I was happy to come home, but I'd love to go back here soon and see them all again. Now, you, did you have any favorite children that you kind of uh, found that both you and the child kind of found yourself ex- uh, really enjoying? Yeah, I mean, all the kids are wonderful. They're beautiful and great. But uh, there are a couple of kids in my area, like I was talking about, that were wonderful. One was named Sonu, and he was about nine. He is about nine, and he just loves to draw and color. And I brought some coloring books and crayons with me. So he would always be drawing me pictures and bringing me gifts of 
color and drawings, and it was wonderful. Aww. He was adorable. And how old was he? Nine. Nine. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. You know, this uh, not this summer. Uh, I had seen on television an interview with a young woman who had been in a corporate busy life, mm-hmm. and yet she was going to college and a very busy life and. She had been going to India, giving her time at orphanages, like you have just done, mm-hmm. and she kept going back, and now, today, she owns some orphanages, has orphanages, I don't know if you can own but she's operating orphanages and absolutely loving it. Yeah. Now, with children in India, when you found, what were some of the reasons that the children were at the orphanages, that the parents pass away? Uh, what do you think some of the reasons that they have so many children in orphanages? Um, most of the kids there were actual orphans. They lost both their parents, and so they'd oh. come there to be taken care of. But um, some some of the children had parents who I think a lot of the time the circumstances of the culture, I mean, over in that area in Asia, it's still you have sons, and that's what mm-hmm. carries on your family and your legacy. And so when they have daughters, it's it's um, perceived as a burden. And so mm-hmm. when you have when you're in a situation where you don't have the resources to take care of a lot of children, um, mm-hmm. a lot of the kids were put in the orphanage so that their parents could indeed have male children. And a I lot see. of the other kids um, had parents who either couldn't take care of them or um, just mm-hmm. their situation culturally. Well, how wonderful that they have the orphanage for, for the children. Mm-hmm. They sound like they're very, very happy. It uh, sounds like that the nuns and all the community people are making the orphanages an exciting home life for them. Yeah, the kids really do have um, a good situation where they're at, at least at the orphanage I was mm-hmm. in. They're loved and taken care of, and um, so I, I don't think... Right now, they're really aware of the fact that it's just a big family for them, and they have a lot of brothers, and they have a lot of sisters, and mm-hmm. they call the woman helpers mommy, and it, it's adorable to watch. Oh, I bet it is. An ex- oh, what an exciting uh, experience for you for the rest of your life, Michaela. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask you now, uh, when you went out, uh, let's say you weren't at the orphanage, what did you and your, the group do for... Uh, um, any activity for any extra things to do that were a lot of fun. I know everything was fun, but did you go uh, into the city uh, very often? Um, yeah, we did, actually. We've, we were placed at the beginning in Gurgaon, which is about a half an hour to 45 minutes outside of Delhi. And so we took some time to go into Delhi. We saw sites, um, some of the bigger mosques. We saw some Hindi temples. Uh, saw some of the tourist sites um, there in Delhi. We went shopping in Delhi and kind of just explored the streets. And now, what, tell us about the streets, what you saw. Now, um, I've heard that they have a lot of monkeys running around. <laughs> is that true? That is true. Not necessarily in Delhi. Delhi is one of the more, um, well, it's the biggest city in India. It's got 12.8 million people, and so it's very crowded. But in places like Agra and Jaipur, where the Taj Mahal is, there are... There are monkeys and camels and elephants just everywhere. Everywhere. When you're walking down the streets, are there monkeys jumping on the cars? Um, Not on the cars. They're up on the buildings. I think up on the buildings. Yeah. Uh (laughs) But um, cows everywhere. Cows everywhere. Monkeys. And then uh, what about camels? Camels. um, They're used a lot um, for pulling um, just 
for working and Wagon. loading up type of packaging okay. and stuff like that. I'm always seeing them pulling carts and things like that. But did you ever expect to feed that many monkeys and elephants and camels and cows? Not really. It was still a shock, even though you think Indian, you think exotic and animals, mm-hmm. but it was a shock to see it just them on the side of the road. So All over the place. Yeah. We have a guest uh, today to ask a question of you. Charlotte, are you there? Yes, I am. Thank you. Thank you. It's a very, very interesting program, Michaela. And I have a couple questions. One is, uh, and I don't think you've covered it, how you actually um, were exposed to this program, how you got into the program, and then how did you handle your water? I know when I was in India, it was touch and go as to am I drinking, you know, I, I stayed with uh, bottled water, and how, how did the Indians handle the water situation? Okay, and well, that's, that's a good question. I will start out with um, how did what was the program you went with, Michaela? The program I went with was called Global Crossroads, and it's a volunteer organization that basically you sign up and you pay for it, and they find a place for you to stay and um, a place to work at. And there are different programs you can be involved in, not just country-wise, that you can pick to work in an orphanage or to work with a health-based project or women's issues. And so um, I found them online, and I was just um, searching for all types of different organizations, trying to look at all the different options and possibilities of where I could go. And did you choose the country? Yes, I chose the country. Now, Michaela, did you spend a lot of time doing some research on the program before you went? Yeah, I did a lot of research, um, first deciding where I was going to go, and then after I decided... Uh, looking at information on India, and uh, they gave me all my placement information before I left, so I knew the orphanage I was going to. I knew where I was staying in India, so I had that information, and I could do more research from that. And Charlotte had a question about the water, and then one thing uh, that we did cover earlier about you and the water, but what about other the, uh, people in India? That was a good question, Charlotte. What do they do? Do they have... Do they drink a lot of water, or do they drink bottled water, or do they just drink filtered waters? Um, well, bottled water is readily available. Um, I drink a lot of bottled water also just because it's more convenient to carry with you. Um, like I was saying, because they have such a, a high uh, poverty uh, population, most people don't have access to filtered water and end up drinking the water, I mean, that they bathe in, water on the side of the road, it's, uh, water they wash their clothes in. And so because there's so many people, especially in Delhi with 12.8 million people, uh, there's not, they don't have the resources to access clean drinking water. Did you notice they had a lot of running water to wash their hands and uh, dishes and things like that, or was that being um, uh, uh, so, were they being careful with not using too much water? Well, in the apartment houses that I was in, they had running water that they could use to wash their clothes and things like that, and for them, filtered water wasn't a problem. But India has a very large population of people who live on the side of the road, and they call them slums. And basically what it is is they live under tents and sometimes um, pieces of metal that are placed together, like makeshift shelters. And so for those people, they have to go out and um, bucket their water and get um, buckets of water from different still water sources, and they don't have mm-hmm. still, they don't have running water. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you, Charlotte. Yeah. Well, it's, Michaela, we don't have too much more time, but the one thing I wanted to hear about is the people that you went with, uh, that you met there. Uh, how many people were at the location of the volunteers that came from all over the world, and what countries did they come from? Uh, well, we started out all together, all the volunteers, before we went to our placements, and there are probably 20 of us. And everyone was from America except for one girl from Canada, another girl from Denmark, and a guy from England, from London. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so did you find a lot of them to be uh, make friends for probably a potential lifetime? Some of them. Yeah, I met a lot of great people who I know that I'll I'll keep in contact with, and I, we just had so much fun together, and just touring India and experiencing what it is there. It's hard to describe in words what India was like because it's something that you definitely need to experience to really to appreciate and understand to the fullest extent. Now, before we leave, if we have any young listeners uh, that are listening or families that would thought it might be a good idea for their uh, teenagers to go and experience something like this, what is some of the uh, final uh, what you would like to share with them on your particular experience and what they would do to prepare for this? Um, I think the main thing is is once when you start thinking about it, it might seem a little scary and you're not sure exactly what's going to happen when you get there. And one of the main things that I discovered in India, especially being in India, is that you just really have to just go with it and just you have to be open and willing to experience a lot of different things because that's how you're going to get the most out of your your trip and your experiences. Just opening yourself up and just relaxing and you know being cautious, be prepared. There are a lot of things that are going to happen that you weren't prepared for, but you have to learn to adapt and just just go with it. And you had an international phone that you could have a lifeline there for being able to exchange phone conversation with not only your family but probably other people there. Yeah, that's very important. If you're going to a foreign country, um, especially one that's not used to a lot of um, um, tourists and Western Westerners coming in and a lot of the rural areas I was in, um, you need to be able to contact and communicate with the people who sent you there, the people, the coordinators of the program, making sure that if you do have any problems, you can call them and they will do their best to resolve those. So, And, of course, you took your laptop and you were able to communicate by email also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, because I was talking earlier how India does have a lot of technology, so there are wireless places everywhere. There are cyber cafes. So even if you don't take a laptop, it is possible for mm-hmm. you to find a place to use a computer and to access the Internet and email your friends and family. Well, thank you for giving your uh, time to representing America and going to the beautiful country of India. Uh, Yes, you're right. They have a tremendous influence of wonderful people that live there and coming to America to help with technology and assist us in the medical field and many more uh, exchanges. But you did a special thing and uh, giving your time. And, and Michaela, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And uh, you have a nice day. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Bye. Well, we're going to listen from our sponsor right now. And our second guest will be Rod Nichols with the Oregon Department of Forestry, which I'm looking forward to. We'll take a moment for our sponsor. We'll be right back. 
Discover the secret of Nature's Tears Eye Mist, an entirely different approach to eye care without eye drops. When your tear film is dry, your eyes feel dry. Nature's Tears Eye Mist naturally supplements the tear film with Biologic Aqua Absolute Premium Standard Grade of pure, all-natural water. Nature's Tears Eye Mist, just a mist. All-natural, safe, convenient, no preservatives. Nature's Tears Eye Mist can be purchased nationwide at selected eye care professionals and drugstores near you. To reach a show host or guest during the live show, dial toll-free in North America, 866-613-1612. Or, if outside the USA and Canada, dial 001-858-268-3068. Welcome back to the Sharon Kleiner Hour, The Power of Water and Global Warming. And today we have Rod Nichols with the Oregon Department of Forestry. Rod, are you with us? I'm with you. Well, thank you for joining us. I'm and glad where to be am here. I? Where, where are you? Where are you at at this moment? I'm in Salem, Oregon. In the state capital of Oregon. That's correct. Okay. Well, every time I have a special guest like yourself, and by the way, thank you for giving your time to the forestry because I think it's a very special. Uh, mission that our foresters are giving, and the United States forestry is absolutely to be commended for all the time and energy, and and I'll call it a mission because it takes a very special person to want to do that. What? Why did you choose to be in the forestry? Well, I'm actually my background is uh, public information, so I'm not actually a forester. I'm in our mm-hmm. uh, what we call our agency affairs group and we uh-huh. uh, present forestry information to the public and and mm-hmm. try to communicate the policies of the department. Mm-hmm. Okay, well thank you for joining us today. And were you have you always lived in Oregon? Uh, I've lived out of state for quite a while but I am a native of Oregon. Mm-hmm. Good. Well, uh, let's start out with this morning. Uh, what is the main goal of your forestry department here in Oregon? I'm saying here in Oregon because I'm in Oregon. Um, listeners, as many of our listeners know, I'm in Grants Pass, Oregon, doing this worldwide show. The Oregon uh, Department of Forestry is a, a state forestry agency, and our primary mission is protecting about 16 million acres of lands from wildfire, and those include all of the private lands as well as some public lands. And then we also regulate the forest practices that are uh, done out on the private lands to protect water and wildlife and ensure good forest health. Uh, In addition, in Oregon, there's about 800,000 acres of state-owned forest lands that we manage. And we also provide technical assistance to small woodland owners, the so-called family forest land owners who... uh, uh, need help to do a good job with their lands. Mm-hmm. Now, when you say you protect 16 million acres uh, in Oregon, is that state-owned acreage or government? Well, it's, uh, a, it's a combination of uh, several ownerships, primarily private forest lands in the state, okay. both the, the large corporate land holdings as well as the small mm-hmm. family forest land owner lands. Okay. We also have a, a long-standing agreement with the Federal Bureau of Land Management that we protect all of their lands on the west side of the state. And in addition, we also protect other state government lands, such as state parks and and other holdings and local government forest lands. 
I think it would be fascinating for our listeners throughout the world to hear, um, Rod, uh, that the state of Oregon is a little unique, isn't it? And, and correct me about uh, where they sit and, and the forestry they have uh, compared to, well, let's say, Washington is similar. In fact, Rod, you didn't know this, I'm sure, but we had as a special guest the head of the Olympic National Forest as one of our Scottish guests not long ago. And we've had the head of the Florida Everglades, and we've had some different heads of different uh, forestries and different, uh, different parks and so on to be special guests. Tell us the uniqueness about Oregon. They have a, a tremendous amount of acres there that you're overseeing. Well, but you're also, you said, yeah, you mentioned that you're overseeing it for private, but also for the federal government. Uh, well, on the yes, we do protect federal lands on the west side of the Cascades, the Bureau of Land Management lands. Oregon has about 28.5 million acres of forest total statewide, and that counts all of the ownerships, and so that would include the, the federal national forests as well as private and local, and we're just a piece of the pie here. We uh, mainly are focused on private forest lands, although, as I said, we do protect some uh, public lands from wildfire, but we also uh, work closely with, we have a Forest Practices Act in Oregon that was actually the first one in the country back in the early 1970s It was established, and that is a kind of a landmark piece of legislation that uh, was emulated by other states in the years following, and that really is the, the key for us of uh, maintaining uh, good water quality and protecting wildlife habitat and ensuring the long-term health of our forests. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's bring that up a little bit. That is inter- exciting. Now, Oregon in 1979 decided, now, uh, was there a reason at the moment that they decide, uh, made that move? Well, uh, actually, in the, the early first- 70s uh, is when Oregon instituted its Forest Practices Act, and uh, we, it was more of a kind of a public uh, groundswell. There had been other forestry laws on the books in the state mm-hmm. uh, years before that, but it just mm-hmm. seemed to be the right time to have a, mm-hmm. a formal act that would mm-hmm. uh, protect uh, these values so that, that people who do have private forest lands that they manage for timber production can mm-hmm. continue to do that and uh, make a living off the land and at the same time protect the long-term values out there. And mm-hmm. that's and, and, well, in other words, you probably went to uh, be involved with, together with the private and and then giving them the opportunity of all the scientists that are involved in the and the different uh, foresters that are involved with the knowledge that they have, so they brought them t- together for the first time. Am I wrong? Yes, you follow that's, me? that's correct. And, you know, the, the forest landowners had a large role in establishing Oregon's Forest Practices Act, and we've always tried to be mm-hmm. science-based with that because, mm-hmm. you know, there are a lot of opinions about how to, to manage forests out there, but we go with the mm-hmm. the science, and the Forest Practices Act has developed over the years as new information has come out. We depend heavily on the research that is provided by Oregon State University and other mm-hmm. uh, academic institutions to Isn't it, Rob, interesting that way back in time, because you're private owners that have given their lives 
to the forest and loves the forest as much as anyone, the private side, that long ago that there wasn't, it wasn't decided to join forces from the forestry to be part of that whole plan so they both could work together forever. Uh, thank gosh they did it it's when they did um, in a manner uh, when I'm, where I'm coming from, Rod, is there's no one in the world that loves the forest more than those, um, those uh, let's call it our loggers. Uh, the people who had a business private that brought the timber to the world, uh, all over the world. And then the, the government, let's say on the side of the forestry, way back in time, it's too bad they didn't think, let's join forces on this. Every time you cut a tree, let's plant a tree. Uh, but now is that what they're doing is every time there's a tree, there's a, a tree. Uh, how many trees do you think are being planted in Oregon? Or do you know that? Well, uh, there are some numbers on that. I'm sorry I don't have them in my head. That's okay. But, uh, That's okay. But the Forest Practices Act does require replanting after mm-hmm. harvest. And so actually uh, we have, we go more on total uh wood in the mm-hmm. forest, so to speak, mm-hmm. rather than individual trees. And the volume of timber that is in Oregon's forest statewide is growing every year. In other words, the harvest that is done is not uh, cutting into the, the base of timber. It's actually uh, we're growing more trees than we're cutting. Isn't that exciting? It, it's, you know, that's the way forestry should be. The rest be. of the world should hear this. That Oregon is growing more trees than it is cutting, and that's the support of all the private lands and all that's going on. Um, I wanted to mention to you something, or uh, to the so, the so our listeners around the world are hearing. Oregon is so unique, isn't it, Rod? Uh, that that abs- absolutely the mountain ranges and no end of forests. Uh, what do you do to keep the, uh, in the forest? What are you doing for the, let's say, dead uh, trees and the dead, uh, the insects and what are happening? Do they have special um, planning uh, to protect the forest from being um, um, for, from insect damage and from, uh, let's say, let's talk about the fires that come along because of all the dead well, that's certainly an issue right now, and we do have, you know, there's no denying we have some problems in the state. There are uh, especially federal timberlands on the drier side of the state, the eastern side of the state, because of uh, oh, a lot of political concerns. There hasn't been adequate management of those forests, those federal forests on the east side, and because of that we've had uh, forest stands becoming overly dense and then that invites insect and disease problems in, and so we have a lot of areas where we have dead standing trees that are on the east side of the Cascades where it's drier that present quite a fire hazard. So when we do get a wildfire in one of those forests, it's often very difficult to put out. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, let's mention, uh, I don't want to put you on the spot, but because of the global warming, there, there's been some reporting to evaluate that there could be more insect problems. Are, are they finding a lot more insect problems than ever in the past? Well, we, we do have problems. We think it's, at least in Oregon, that it's more related to the, the management or the lack thereof. Uh, cutting down the dead and, yeah, uh-huh, because, because of lack of cutting down and clearing out the dead to get rid it. of the insects. One, okay. Something we look at is, uh, you know, 
foresters talk about fuel loading and they they talk about how much dead material is on the the floor of the forest and if mm-hmm. you have diseased trees that are dead and standing they're mm-hmm. they're also a tremendous fire hazard so we mm-hmm. uh private owners tend to work to avoid those kind of fuel loading mm-hmm. situations so that if they do have a fire it's pretty easy to put mm-hmm. out but uh there's some political issues with uh, cutting trees in some of the the federal lands just because there's uh, some folks are just opposed to any kind of tree cutting at all whether it's thinning or whatever uh and there there is also an issue of uh, in Oregon we have a lot of people moving into the state and they're moving out into the forest lands oftentimes uh and this makes for a tremendous challenge to fight fires because uh it's mm-hmm. one thing to fight a wildfire when you can focus on putting it out for the the trees sake Forest. but when you have houses out there then it mm-hmm. changes the whole equation now have there been some incentives that i've heard about that those people who build ha- can cut uh put a firewall let's call it uh are there certain incentives to for, to get them to do that or do they have to think about that on their own cut down the uh the dead fo- uh dead trees around and put and clear out a little bit so there's a, a little bit of space between the house and the forest Oh, that's true. Yes, in Oregon we passed a law in 1997 that uh, placed more responsibility on homeowners to actually create what they call defensible space around their homes, Mm -hmm. remove some of that vegetation so that if a wildfire does occur, it's less likely to encroach on their home. And people have responded in many of the communities uh, were were in more fire-prone condition. Uh, of course, we have a lot of new residents, so they have to be educated to the situation. Uh, unfortunately, mm-hmm. people move out of the metro areas, and they think the fire department can be there in five minutes if they have a fire. And, of course, that's not the case when you get into more remote areas. And let's praise our first responders that get out and fight those fires. Um, now... People don't uh, don't appreciate enough, Rod. Those those first responders, those people who take their lives, are, are out there to fight those fires and it, give it's us a very those forests. Job certainly it's very is. dangerous. And besides, unhealthy. Uh, you may make it through the fire, okay, but it's uh, the lungs and everything that goes with the. Uh, it's very hard work, and to find those special people to be that first responder. Well, um, you know, they're they're who we depend on, and we have exactly. Uh, all of the agencies in Oregon, fortunately, the federal agencies as well as the state and the local mm-hmm. fire departments all work really closely together. So uh, the boundary lines kind of disappear during fire season, mm-hmm. and people just put mm-hmm. out the fire that they're close to, and then they get reimbursed later. So, you know, we have uh, a really good system of uh, work. So they're, lo- they're using the local fire department and the local first responders plus our forest uh, firefighters that go out with the Forest Service. That's right. So we have I wanted a, to ask you yeah. uh, also, I'm sorry to interrupt real quick because we're almost out of time. I no, um, wanted to ask you about the rivers in Oregon. Do you oversee the rivers uh, in Oregon uh, along with the forest? Well, only we don't actually oversee waterways, but we do have, as part of our Forest Practices Act, we require that uh, a buffer of uh, trees be left along streams so that they can prevent erosion from uh, getting mm-hmm. silt and sediment into the streams. That way oh, we can okay. help preserve water quality. Okay, explain that again. I think our listeners around the world probably never have heard of such a thing or maybe even uh, around the United States or Oregon. 
so you the, there's a, 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 a rule, a law, it's probably a law, that you cannot cut the tree next to the river's edge so it will do what now? Uh, that's to basically provide a, a buffer area or a green mm-hmm. strip to mm-hmm. uh, prevent, say, if there's activity on the land uphill that mm-hmm. would, might cause... Uh, sediment to move down towards the stream, if you have that mm-hmm. green strip around the streams, or they call it the riparian area, and that will filter out a lot of that material, and so you can maintain good water quality. Oh, that's exciting. I had not, I did not know that. So, and what are they usually, is that all along the river, or is that in certain parts of the river location? It's actually fairly complex depending on the size of the stream and whether mm-hmm. the stream is fish bearing and, and all of that but it's uh, but it is a rule and other states have it as well it's just part of our law here and, and mm-hmm. foresters or private foresters are very good at complying with that and so they maintain those mm-hmm. those buffer strips well I'm sorry we're going to be out of time uh, is there anything you'd like to say to the listeners of the world about Oregon and what you think is some of the most exciting if you can real quickly, that Oregon is doing uh, for the ecosystem, because I believe, uh, Rod, that this is affecting the whole wide world, what we're doing here in Oregon. Well, we certainly, you know, we're very committed to sustainable forestry, meaning that uh, we preserve not only social values, but economic and ecological values. And we think the forest can provide all three of those things, not just one or the other. So that's what we work for. Well, thank you for your time, and thank thank you you for being with that forestry group, because they are uh, people to be commended, and I think they're way too much taken for granted. Thanks. You have a nice day. Bye. Goodbye. Well, thank you for joining me today with the Sharon Kleiner Hour. Uh, I want you to close with, I believe that we all agree that Earth does have a secret, and Earth, what uh, life in, in with your with the Earth, uh, you should uh, embrace your moment, every precious moment. And Earth has a whisper: never say goodbye. Thank you for listening, and you have a nice day.